From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. The Therapeutic Goods Administration recently announced changes to the regulation of software as a medical device. The changes will apply to software which has a purpose consistent with the definition of a medical device, such as prevention, diagnosis, prediction, monitoring, or the treatment of a disease or disability. Today, Bronwyn LeGrice on how the changes will work to distinguish certain products that are considered low risk from the ones that are subject to additional oversight. Bronwyn, thank you for coming on the Tea Room. Thanks, Francine. It's great to be here. Bronwyn LeGrice is the CEO and founder of Australia's only not-for-profit digital health accelerator, AntHealth. Bronwyn, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit today about some changes that have really created changes in your own industry, and that is the regulation changes from the TGA. Would you mind explaining to us what's happened? Sure, Francine. Um, regulation is not necessarily a topic that everyone loves to talk about, but in this case, it's been the clarification of regulation of software as a medical device by the TGA, which is really starting to put some maturity into the expectations of what digital health products need to look like if they are going to make health claims and be deployed to patients, especially those patients with chronic or serious illness, in terms of how they are measured for their both safety and efficacy before they reach the patient. And what does that actually look like? Could you tell us a little bit more about the history of how they were regulated and then what these changes mean in practical terms? Sure. So just like with any new drug or therapeutic or vaccine or medical device before it reaches the market, those products will go through a a rigorous clinical trials process. They're tested for their safety, their efficacy, their adverse events are monitored. And, you know, We expect that of our health products. I think when we look at the proliferation of software apps on on the application stores, so whether it's Google or Apple, and we also look at, you know, the number of wearables that consumers are using, many of those products have been making health claims in a way that would lead consumers to believe that they may be health products versus wellness products and that they are products that have legitimacy in managing quite serious conditions. And so what this regulation does is really underpin that for software-based products, if they're making health claims around preventing, diagnosing, monitoring, managing, treating or alleviating a disability or a disease or an injury, that those software applications have gone through a similar process in terms of clinical trials and testing as any other medical product may have. And so before the regulation had changed, there was, there was some regulation there. It just wasn't necessarily as clearly delineated as the new regulations are. And the other aspect of it is they have created carve-outs for certain products that are considered low risk to users or that are subject to other mechanisms of oversight. And that, that's really enabled people that provide really critical health IT infrastructure like clinical decision support software um, they can now look at um, being exempted from the from the medical device regulations. But if you're an application that's making a claim about helping people to manage their serious illness, like type 2 diabetes, you'll have to show that your product is safe and that it actually has an impact. So it does what it says on the box. And, I mean, we know that that rigorous testing does come 
at significant expense to these companies. And, you know, I'm sure that you working in the accelerator space would understand that. Do you think that this will set the bar higher and really get companies to come in with maybe less of just a commercial perspective and really bring in some rigor to the industry of people who actually want to create positive change at the patient end? Yeah, so I think it's really important because I think it's really not cool, (laughs) for want of a technical word, But it's really not okay to be making claims that you can prevent or monitor or manage a serious illness if you don't have any evidence to substantiate it. Yeah, clinical trials come at a cost. They can be very expensive. The design of clinical trials for digital health products can be quite complicated because what does a control look like? You know, if if you're testing an application for the management of a chronic illness, your control is probably not no smartphone. It's probably a, a combination of apps or processes that the patient would use in place of this particular product. So it's not simple to design these clinical trials, but it is really important because although there is a cost attributable to it, from the company's perspective, it is actually a competitive advantage. So like any product, in terms of when you are trying to gather the trust of primary health physicians or any other type of clinical expert, they will look at the third-party validation of your data before they trust it enough to prescribe it. So it's really important to get clinicians involved. But also it's really important that these companies, when they get their clinical data, that becomes a really strong part of their unique selling proposition to the healthcare system. And so by getting that data and by owning that data and their outcomes and being able to point to outcomes and not just clinical outcomes but health economic outcomes, that company can then sell a value proposition to the health system and to the physicians and to the patients that they couldn't otherwise sell. And I think we saw this, you know, in the early days of wearables. There was a class action against Fitbit for inaccuracy in its heart rate and sleep data in the US, and that was because there was a number of companies that were trying to claim that they were about wellness, but at the same time make claims about things that were quite relevant to to actual health outcomes. And so the clarification through regulation of where the threshold is set is really important. It also means that the companies that are developing products that genuinely have clinical impact can set themselves apart from those that are maybe just more generic wellness products. Yeah, and could you maybe paint a little bit more detail around this where is that line Bronwyn in terms of what is now considered a wellness product and when does it kind of cross that line into becoming more health focused and under this new regulation sure so the Therapeutic Goods Act in Australia already has a definition for a medical device and that's what they've used to drive the predominance of this um, regulation so under the changes software-based products that make health claims are subject to a medical device classification that is aligned to the risk level of the patient. So any devices that provide a diagnosis or screen for a disease or condition that monitor state or progression of disease um, or the parameters of the person that might have those um, that disease or condition that recommend a treatment or intervention or that provide therapy, these are all things that would be captured by this. And, and our medical device regulation in Australia, and it's quite aligned to that overseas has different classes of risk and so certain devices may fall into a quite simple class one others might be a class 2a class 2b and class 3 and that is all dependent upon the risk level to the patient and so you can safely assume that if they're 
providing an intervention for a condition that has serious repercussions if it's not appropriately managed, that it will attract a higher risk rating. And so that's how our medical regulatory framework has always worked. It's how it works for medical devices, physical medical devices. So it's a logical process. And again, it's always about putting the patient at the centre and what's the risk. And so where, where these applications don't necessarily claim to prevent or diagnose or monitor or, or alleviate, they may actually fall outside of this and fall into the carve-outs, similar to those clinical decision support systems. But where they are making those claims and including um, whether they're informing or driving or trying to replace clinical decisions or whether they're directly providing therapy through behaviour change mechanisms and patient engagement, these are all things that where they claim to, to impact the disease state or the disease outcomes, they have to have the evidence. A good example of that would be an application that supports patients with type 2 diabetes to manage their blood glucose levels through lifestyle change. And so there are a number of applications across the world that are doing this and, and, and some of them are really sophisticated in the way they engage the patient. And those applications can now point to, so there's a perfect example, the product is called Blue Star, it's manufactured by a company called Welldoc. And that particular product is reimbursed as a therapy in the US by the FDA. It is um, a it has a prescription and an over-the-counter version, believe it or not, it's just an app on your phone. But what it does is um, in a, in a three-month intensive period for the prescription version or however long the prescription is for, is that it provides support to that patient through connecting to their um, blood glucose monitor and to alerting them to when their blood sugar levels are at risk and then giving them things that they can do immediately to address that. So um, in the US, it's quite cool. It can tell someone that their blood sugar is low. It can tell them that within a two block radius, there's five restaurants and these are the things on the menus of those restaurants that will give them the carbohydrate level that they need to address their blood sugar issue. So that's a really sophisticated piece of consumer behaviour change that has been proven to drive sustained reduction in HbA1c levels in type 2 diabetics um, and has sustained that impact and that lower HbA1c beyond the kind of prescription time of the patient using the app. So it really shows the power of engaging the patient through technology in their own health management. We know that patients, even really dedicated and compliant patients, struggle with adherence to medication um, regimes, polypharmacy is an issue. These are all areas where technology can have a really sustained impact on the way people live their lives while they're managing their health conditions. I understand that a lot of GPs at the moment, even if they might be aware of you know, these really significantly useful tools out there like the one that you just described they're sometimes hesitant in Australia to recommend these to patients as a health professional because there just isn't that uh, rigorous data behind them do you think that this will really have changes in clinical practice and in the ability for doctors to actually put a little bit more confidence behind recommending different use of technology to their patients and there are so many apps out there and there are apps out there that make, you know, endless claims about transforming your health um, and how it's policed at the app store level is, is kind of um, yet to be explored. One of the great examples is that the ECG component of the Apple iWatch is actually disabled in Australia because it's not as a software platform approved yet. So 
there are mechanisms the TGA um, can bring to bear or that manufacturers have to adhere to when they're selling product into Australia now that if they're not on the um, Australian Register of Therapeutic Goods, they actually can't sell. And there are penalties if they do. But absolutely, regulation is core to trust. It's core to trust for clinicians that want to prescribe technologies that can help their patients. It's core to trust for patients. These things that are proven, the fact that the physician can see that it is a TGA class 2 medical device that has been approved by the TGA, I absolutely think that that will give them the confidence to move forward and start to explore these therapies. I also think it gives them the confidence that if they do and there's an adverse event, that they have gone through an an appropriate level of due diligence from a medico-legal perspective. I was also going to ask whether doctors should be aware of how this might affect some of the clinical decision-making tool software that's already out there and that doctors might already be using. The ones that come to mind are some of the dermatology software programs that, you know, allow Mm. doctors to compare different skin lesions to assess the um, malignancies. Will this affect those programs and should doctors be aware of anything in this regard? Well, I think where clinical decision support software is offering up, as your example is perfect, you know, that um, skin care comparison or the lesion comparison thing where they can say, here's 20 other lesions that look like this and this is what the diagnosis was on those 20 lesions. That itself is not making a clinical recommendation. It's providing a, a really complex and rich data set to help inform the clinician to make that call. And that, again, is is just about providing information. So I think those types of applications where doctors are still in the driving seat but they're getting that rich information, I think doctors should feel really safe in using those. And I also think that doctors should um, benefit from, you know, that ability to see that visual representation of data and help use that to to guide their own thinking and um, assessments. But, you know, in that scenario, the doctor is still very much in the driver's seat. I think what we're talking about here is applications, you know, the riskier applications are things where, People may be relying on something to monitor their heart rate post-heart surgery, right? And so this is where things like Fitbits versus a clinical-grade heart rate monitor might. And I don't mean to throw Fitbit under the bus, but any kind of consumer-grade wearable, and there's millions of them, where, you know, what level of accuracy should somebody that's had a heart or a cardiac incident, whether it's a heart attack or surgery, what level of accuracy should they be relying on in order to make sure that they're keeping their heart rate within the recommended levels, you know? And so what is the, what is the difference in that scenario between a clinical grade wearable and a off the shelf consumer wearable? And increasingly we're seeing the big um, consumer wearable companies, you know, move into the regulated medical space and Apple and Fitbit are two perfect examples as are Samsung and others. But the reality is, when those types of devices were being used by patients who might be using them for quite specific clinical reasons and the evidence stack wasn't there, that does put the patient at risk. So it is all about the doctors now being able to differentiate between things that have that really solid evidence base behind them and things that are just saying, hey, I can kind of measure your heart rate when you're out for a walk and estimate how many calories you burnt because you might want to lose a few pounds. I think being able to differentiate between things that are appropriate for clinical practice and things that are not are really good. But I don't think um, doctors should be wary of the products in market. I mean, the products that are in market, if they 
fall under this regulation, they have to now meet, meet the regulation. They have a grace period. But as long as they were already listed on the ARTG, they have a grace period to, to make sure that their dossiers and their regulation is brought up to speed. And the other thing is, is that if they weren't already on the ARTG, they can no longer sell as of February the 25th. And, you know, Francine, we've all seen it. We've all seen the um, most recent one um, is that I am still to my embarrassment on Facebook because my husband and I are not from Victoria where we live. And so uh, my Facebook page is the Universal Family Photo Album for our children basically across the world. So the whole family uses it. But I was on Facebook the other day and there was a company that does basically diet management and they were making claims about managing type 2 diabetes. And I was looking at going, this is the kind of thing that can now be penalised by the TGA because they're making claims without the sufficient regulatory clearance. And so, I mean, the real um, challenge, I think, is making sure that people know the difference between what's been proven and what hasn't. And there's a lot of education that has to happen around that. But I think we, we're getting there. And, you know, there's other examples of libraries of pre-approved apps and whether or not we work with the, um, there's a lot of potential for the Australian Digital Health Agency to, to look at, and they've mentioned this in their strategy previously, around curated app libraries where they verified that these are regulatory approved apps that, that have clinical data and so that there's somewhere for doctors to go to verify what they want to, what they want to deploy into their patient populations. Bronwyn Legrice, thank you. Thanks, Francine. It was so much fun.